don't even think you need any introduction. I think the last podcast you're on, someone dropped your name. But I think in like 50 of the episodes, you're probably in 48 of them. But for those of you guys who don't know, uh, this is Jason Cup. He's been one of my mentors for the past six years. Uh, met him through the service autopilot world, through the Jonathan world. And they have he has a funny story how they met through email. I'll let him tell that story. Uh, Jason does all kinds of stuff. He's a financial guru. Uh, he's a sales guru. Uh, they do crisis management, marketing, pretty much everything uh, under the sun. Um, but I'll let him tell what they do. Uh, he owns Kincaid.com. Uh, and we'll, we'll post his links in here. But uh, again, a great friend, a great mentor, uh, super intelligent, fun to be around. So just welcome to the show, Jason. And thanks for being here with us. Awesome. I'm excited to be here, man. This is like a huge... Um, honor for me to, to number one, it's a huge honor to watch you and what you're doing. And then kind of like that, that role reversal where I know you're out making impact to people, which I just love. I love watching that. It, it makes me smile. And then for you to, you know, want me to join you guys for a period of time is, is really cool. So I'm honored to be here. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a true, it's a true treat to be here. So thanks for having yeah. me. Of course. And it's like, you've taught me a bunch over the last six, seven years now, but it's like, everyone needs to know this information. Like everyone needs to know all this. Like when I first met you, like I didn't have a clue what cogs were. I didn't know anything about business from what I thought I knew. And then just really diving deep into financials over and over and over again, make sure that we're on the same page. Yeah. We came down to Kansas city for, was it two, three days? And we just did a round table event, really, uh, really worked on our numbers, how we can improve what we could do going in the future. And then when we left that, we had all of our numbers and ducks in a row, like what the next year could look like. And that was like one of, if not the most impactful thing that I've ever done in my business ever, just really dialing in our numbers, knowing our numbers day to day, uh, knowing our, what cogs and profits should be. But again, it was just uh, all from you. So I feel like everyone that's listening to this show, whether they're you know, a multi-million dollar company or just starting out, I think it's been said over and over and over again, just if they could go back and learn one thing sooner, be known their financials. And so that's kind of where we'll start. But again, why don't you just tell us your story of how you got into the industry, how you started your company, how you got out of the company. Like you've been through a lot yourself. Uh, you know, you told your story, like it gets emotional and like it touches my heart every time. Like, and just being through all that, the struggle, right? The, to come out on the other end and be so successful on the other side and seeing what you're doing now, it makes me proud too. Like I've seen the cottage, seeing like the lake house and like where you've come from. It's, it's amazing to watch for me too. So why don't you just tell us that story? Yeah, man. So, uh, so the first, I'll preface, I'll, I'll preface it with saying that I believe that every business owner has to go through some level of adversity to hit their true north. I really, really, truly, honestly believe that. I know that might be true for everybody's story, but when I really dig deep into hearing people's journey and what got them to where they are, there's almost always some personal, financial, health, organization, business adversity that lives somewhere in that story and in that journey. And, and I'm, I'm no different than that. Um, I'll try to go quick, uh, but it's oh, a long story. So, you know, so I, like most people, 12 years old, started mowing lawns, right? Um, and, and my goal at that point was I wanted a four-wheeler. I wanted an ATV. That's what I wanted. And I got one. I started mowing lawns, bought that four-wheeler, had a, a lot of fun memories as a kid on a four-wheeler. But then I realized 
that I could actually build a little bit of a business. And at the age of 15, I took on a business partner, weirdly enough. Um, it was a guy I went to high school with. You know, We started mowing lawns together. And he, uh, he was a very accomplished athlete. And so he started playing a lot of summer ball. And he was not around. He, he, I was doing all the work and he was getting half the money. And that was probably life lesson number one, you know, at 15, 16 years old. And, and weirdly enough, I bought him out. I still laugh about that. You know, I'm in high school and I buy my high school business partner. We didn't even have a business. I mean, we were just mowing lawns. Well, lo and behold, that, that, that little lawn mowing business really is what it was, you know, transition into, you know, a, a million dollar business by the time I was in my early 20s. I had to figure out what it was like to build a staff and buy assets and take on debt and what interest was. But I didn't know much about business. I mean, even though I was in college and I, I was a I was a marketing major, you know, I mean, they don't teach you a lot about business. They teach you a little bit about business. But I didn't know numbers. I didn't know um, the art of building a team and, and what it was like. And, and it was very much about me. I mean, I started my career wanting to buy a four-wheeler. And as, as, it, as it went through, it was very much about what that business could do for me. And I'm grateful to say that through a lot of pain and adversity, that's changed. And it's really today, it's all about other people. Um, we grew and we grew really, really fast. Um, picked up one of the largest home builders in the Kansas City market, which is where I'm born and raised and live today. Um, and all of a sudden, we were installing irrigation and landscaping and doing site work and sod. And and I mean, it was crazy. Mowing model home traps and, and entries to homes associations. And and, and we, we got really big, really fast. And um, probably too big, too fast. But that wasn't actually a bad thing. Because then what, what happened is I kind of went through the career... Um, in this massive growth is is we we turned into what I would call today a design build firm. We started doing really cool, big construction projects in people's backyard. Definitely had our maintenance track, definitely had our fertilization weed control track, had an irrigation, lighting track, snow removal. We were doing it all. And we were doing millions upon millions of years in, of, of revenue and business. Um, not for sure how successful I was at that time because I didn't know numbers then like I teach now, right? Um, but had money and, and did the old adage of I was successful because I had a couple of bucks in the bank account. I was able to, you know, to, to satisfy the needs for me, you know, and buying a house and buying a car and all that kind of stuff. It, it was the wrong need at that point. And I can clearly say that going, you know, looking backwards. Um, hindsight is always 2020, as we all know. And we fast forward to um, doing maybe three or four million bucks a year in business and uh, all in the residential space almost, except for snow. We dabbled a little bit in commercial in snow. My snow business was unique because I was doing a lot of subcontracting work for another company in town. And that company asked me to join their partnership. They, they said, hey, we don't have a residential kind of section of our business. Um, you know, join our team. This would have been in 2005. So quite a while, you know, so, you know, it's 2023. Um, you know, so what, what was that? Uh, that was a long time years, ago. Yeah. 18 years ago, right? Yeah, 18 years ago. So um, joined their team and uh, brought my residential business into their big facility with all of their big employees. And all of a sudden we were doing, you know, depending on the year and snow, eight to $10 million a year. That was awesome. 
We had a CFO, we had a director of operations, we had a huge shop, we had mechanics on staff, we had a big facility, we had tons of metal everywhere. We had trucks and equipment and mowers and skid steers. We had a huge hoop house that had tons of salt in it for a snowmobile operation. I mean, it was insane. It was insane what was going on then. Unfortunately, a handful of years after that, I mean, like maybe three years after that, two years after that, they kind of came to me. Actually, I got the years wrong. I always get the years wrong. This this would have been in, in 2000. I apologize. A handful of years after that, they came to me and they said, hey, we don't want to be in the residential business anymore. And you got to get out. And it wasn't like this aggressive, you got to get out. Just like, this doesn't make sense anymore. So I went from $10 million down to back down to $3 million. Well, think about the difference, you know, and, and Jonas, your listeners know this, you know, the difference between a $10 million company and a $3 million company and a $1 million company and a half a million dollar company, all of those structures and finances look totally different. And so I had to figure out how to go from this big company into this still big company, but much smaller company that has a different structure to it. And I brought on some additional partners. Thought that it was the right move at the time. It ended up not being the right move. Um, and those additional partners created um, um, lots of great opportunity for me. But it actually ended up being the thing that kind of the straw that kind of broke the camel's back. I had a, a pretty significant success at that point um, and success in my own eyes. I mean, I would look back on it now and it wasn't success. I thought it was success. Had all these letters behind my name, had all these accolades and won all these awards, all this kind of stuff. But that doesn't really define success. And and what I learned in that transaction, whether it be right or wrong, was that I let I, I let my ego and and what I wanted out of the organization, which was mostly really about me, kind of take take top priority. And that was wrong. And I can admit that now. I can totally admit that now. And and it created, you know, the downfall of me. So that that deal went through and and I got the the years wrong. That deal went through in 2005, January of 2005. And by 2007, I had bought all those partners out. I, I had said, you know, I, I'd said, no, nope, I need to go back to, to owning 100% of the company. That was a very painful transaction. Um, that in and of itself eroded a significant amount of my net worth, just buying those partners out and getting the company back and hiring different team members and, and kind of rebooting, shuffling the deck of the company. And little did I know, in one year, I turned the thing back into something that was really great. But little did I know that the crash was going to happen in 2018. And that's when it happened in Kansas City. There was this, this horrifying period of time in the summer of 2018 where the phone just kept ringing and people canceling their maintenance contracts. They, they've lost their job. They need their deposit back on their design build project. We're not going to do the pool now. And we had, we had prepared ourselves operationally to complete all those projects and it was literally this daily phone call. And our company shrunk from three to four million dollars to less than a million dollars in a in a had no no fault of our own. It was all the economy. All of us know, you know, what happened from 2018 really in, in I mean, I'm sorry, 2018, 2008, 2011. Right? Yeah, 2008, 2011, yeah. 2012. And we got caught up in the crosshairs of that. And 
the mistake at the time that I made, but man, I am so grateful today in 2023 that I made that error because it was the error that that really taught me a lot about who I am and 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 who I am at the core was I I pushed all the chips into the middle of the table. I cashed out my 401k. I borrowed against my real estate portfolio. I sold my cars. I borrowed money. Um, I, I I borrowed money from my parents. I went I went all in because at the time I thought that I could fix it. But I can't fix the global economy shutting down. I can't fix that builders and developers who are our primary client were going bankrupt. I couldn't fix the fact that homeowners who are our bread and butter uh, were losing their jobs with the big corporations in Kansas City and that they no longer wanted to invest 150 grand in their backyard. I couldn't control any of that, but boy, I sure did. I sure did think that I could. That was wrong of me. 100% wrong of me. Um, I'm embarrassed. At the, I was embarrassed at the time. I'm not embarrassed today because it was, it was such a big part of my journey to learn all of that over the last 12, 13 years of my life. Um, I was able to sell off parts of the business, um, kind of get out alive a little bit, but I wasn't able to get out alive completely. Um, the part of the story that that be, that at the time was painful. I mean, I think every business owner they have fears of, of of what the inevitable fear is, and that's the IRS comes calling. And the IRS came calling for me. The IRS thought that I had not paid a whole bunch of taxes. Um, they ended up pursuing me um, like there's no tomorrow. Um, they had an IRS agent that was following me, that they had access to my QuickBooks, access to my bank accounts. Uh, they had done subpoenas to um, all kinds of things. I mean, it was insane what they had access to, all because they thought that I was a hardened criminal. They couldn't understand how a guy who was once a business partner in a $10 million business that had a significant net worth now had nothing. They thought that I had stolen money from my own company. That's not true. Um, they thought that I had not used that money to pay certain taxes. That wasn't true. It was a big, big, big problem. That plagued me for many, many, many years. I'm the only person, this is the way I explain it now, I'm probably the only person that sued the IRS and won. Okay, the IRS say, You went all at war against them. I did. I had a team yeah. of tax attorneys. Every dollar that I made um, went to attorneys. Um, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, um, went to attorneys to fight the IRS. I won that lawsuit. Um, they, they, they admitted and I admitted that there was no wrongdoing. There was a, a small, well, lot, a lot of money <laughs> that exchanged hands um, to, to mutual release. And then they had to expunge all of that from my credit report, from public domain. And it is nowhere to be found that I'm aware of. The example that I gave is that when all this went down, um, American Express took my credit card away. They closed my account. Um, and I was on, if you Google it, there's a blacklist for American Express. Um, when, when you run into any financial trouble, I don't have my wallet on my desk, but if I were to pull out my wallet, I, I have an American Express card in my wallet today. And it says member since 1998. Okay. They, they backdated it. I, I have a card now. If you Google American Express blacklist, you'll realize that if you ever run into financial trouble, which I did at that point, the IRS forced me into having financial trouble. It was incredibly challenging. You guys, I could sit and talk about it for hours, Jonas, as you know. Um, 
But what that taught me was is that this was the adversity I was, I mean, think about it. You know, I'm coming out of this in 2011, 2012. I got the IRS on my back. I borrowed money from my parents that I can't pay back. That was their retirement. I had cashed in all my chips. I had I had taken my net worth to what it was down to negative. I had no money. There was a time where when I started consulting that I had to, I had to drive my car with virtually no gas in it to my dad's office. And he gave me a hundred dollar bill to put gas in the car. I went to the airport. I got on a plane that I had to have a client buy the plane ticket because I had no money. I had to go to that client's office. They hired me for a consulting job. That's how bad it was. For one year, I took cold showers so I couldn't pay the gas bill in my home. It was brutal. But I am so grateful in today's world that I went through that because it created this sense of compassion and and care and understanding that adversity happens to every single business owner. And most business owners, just like me, had no outlet to go and talk to anybody about it. I was in a complete, the only people I talked to was my dad, a few of my best friends. I had a whole section of friends that I'm no longer friends with because no long, Jason no longer had money. Jason no longer could do this. Jason could no longer do that. I couldn't donate money to charities. I mean, it was brutal. I lost and continue to have lost this entire faction of friends that my identity was them was a successful business owner. Wow, that's And it wild. was interesting. It, it, it is. It's brutal. But I'm telling you, I look back on it now, and, and I don't want anybody to have any you know, pity or shame or anything about it because I don't. I look back on it I now. I got the I chills listening to the story. Yeah. It was awesome. I, I wouldn't be here today having conversations with you or the multitude of people that we have conversations with every single week if this adversity didn't happen. I would have never met Jonathan. I would have never met you. I would have never been on stage at Service Autopilot, SA2. You know, it was interesting. We talked about Jonathan Potoshnik, um, who's one of my best friends. I mean, he actually texted me while we were recording. He's overseas, as you might know. He's on vacation. He texted me. I don't know what the text message said. I just said it popped up. And we literally have a conversation almost every single day. And when I told him this story, when I met him, he said, I want you to tell this story to every single Service Autopilot member that will listen to it. And as you know, through our Service Autopilot Academy, being on stage many years, I did tell that story because I believe that one of the things that business owners don't have is an outlet to go and share just the challenges that they have and have an outlet to try to solve a problem. Mine was a really big problem. Okay. It was a really big problem. I didn't sleep. I had health issues. I gained weight. I, 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 I was really, I mean, probably borderline depressed and discouraged. I was embarrassed that I had to borrow this money from my parents. But it was the, it was interesting. My attorney, I had a whole slew of attorneys, but one of my attorneys in probably 2010, 2011, she said to me, she said, Jason, I have a lot of clients that go through a lot of things just like what you're going through. 10% of them go on to be much more successful than they ever were before all these things. And I believe you're going to be in that 10%. I still am in contact at some level with that attorney. Um, she actually has, she actually helps some clients of mine when they run into a little bit of trouble, a, a great confidant and friend. That's about all I can say at this point. However, she did say, you know, in later years, she said, you are in that 10%. I don't know if I am or not. I feel like that I am. I feel like that the adversity allowed me to get above the clouds and recognize that rather than the first big section of my life and career was about me, 
Now it is 100% about other people. I don't think about myself. I don't think about um, what I do or how I do it. I just do it because I realize that that the, the best communicator is a good listener and I want to listen to people as they're going through whatever that adversity is. That could be a life adversity. That could be a health adversity, financial adversity, a team adversity, a business model adversity. You name it. it you know, People go through it. And I just want to listen and then I want to try to give all the advice that I possibly can to try to help that person through that challenge. It was an interesting, interesting journey, but I don't regret one second of all of the sleepless nights. I mean, I testified at the Department of Justice against myself. I, I mean, like literally not against myself, but I mean in defense of myself. I mean, for one entire day, most people, I mean, I literally had to go into a federal courthouse and I had to just get land blasted by this entire group of people that asked me so many invasive questions that it's absolutely unbelievable. Probably one of the most difficult business days of my life because I sat in my car. I remember sitting in my car with a knot in my stomach going, what's going to happen? You know, the fear of the unknown is a crazy, crazy, crazy fear negotiation tactic, right? And I didn't know it was going to happen. Well, four months later, my court case is over with because they found that I didn't do anything wrong. And I had to write a little, you know, big check, but it's a little check in the world today to get my freedom back. And I'm grateful for that because now I can sit here, you know, on 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 your channel, Jonas, and share that story and my hope is there's one person that listens to this that goes, man, I know what that's like and I need to ask for help. I, I need to I need to expose, I need to tell my best friend, I need to tell my family, I need to tell my parents, I need to tell you, I need to tell, you know, so, I mean, I need to tell somebody because I got to get the monkey off my back. And that's the, fir the first step to addressing an issue is admitting that there is an issue. And oftentimes that comes with revealing it, right? So crazy, crazy, crazy journey. Uh, but I'm grateful for every single second of it because I believe at some level it's made me who I am today. Yeah, now I have a lot of I have a lot of questions written down already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're just getting started. So, like, uh, when you're going through a financial hardship like that, what would you recommend? Like, maybe someone's listening right now that that is going through this exact same thing. What do you recommend that they do? Obviously, you said tell someone, but then what's the next step? Like. Man, I'll tell you what, this is a question that I answer not every day, but probably multiple times a week. The first question is you have to ask yourself why. That's the number one question that we tell our clients is you got to know the why. You got to know the why. Is it, and a lot of people don't know the why. They have to, they have to go through, you know, kind of a data mine to figure out why. Why are you going through the challenge? You know, there's lots of people out there in business that have incredible levels of financial success. Why are they successful and why am I not? Is it pricing? Is it debt? Is it, your lifestyle. I mean, I find a lot, a lot more that, that it's, you know, people building a business to support their lifestyle, whether that be trips or cars or dinners or a house or, or, you know, or making really poor financial moves. It's not about the business. It's about them. And, and I did that. I mean, luckily I didn't go into debt to do it, but I spent every available dollar on having more letters behind my name or driving the car that I thought, you know, I needed to drive at the time. And that's very much about me. And, and, and it really needs to be about the why. Why is this happening? And to really, do, and, and by the way, I can't tell you what it is, you know, now because everybody's situation is different. Some people have way too much debt. Some people take way too much money out of the business. Some people hire people they shouldn't hire. Some people overpay for their employees. Some people take on way too much overhead. Some people uh, uh, don't run an efficient you know, um, business in terms of the crews and, their, and, and the way they buy material. Some people don't price it right. I mean, there's dozens upon dozens of reasons as to the why. 
but there is absolutely a why. Great. So then if they want to fix it, they can just call Jason Cup and say, hey, I'm struggling now. Obviously, you're going to go through uh, their P&L and just figure out what's behind it, right? Um, you mentioned something else, too, that you said that um, – that's uh, that at that time when you're going through the struggles and you're building the business, like you thought you were successful. Right. But then you look oh, back yeah. on it and you're, and you're like, well, that that's not what true success looks like to you today. Jason, what does success look like to you at this point of your life? 100% impact with other people. Um, I, 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 I am often, humbled and I'm, I'm grateful that I, that it's still a, 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 a humility lesson when somebody says, Hey man, you helped me do this or you helped me yeah. do that. Or, you know, even you opening, yep. you, you know, saying, Hey, you're one of my mentors. That's hard for me to hear. It's hard for me to accept, but it is a deposit in the success home. It has nothing to do with where I live or what I do or what I drive or, you know, any of that type of stuff. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with other people. But I will tell you, that's a pretty esoteric way to answer that question. So I'll give you a, 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 a fact, a detail that I think is a, is a driver of success. And, I, and I'll also fully admit that I'm not there yet. Um, I think that the most successful people have control over time. They can use their time in any way that they want to. And, and, and they don't, they're not confined to, uh, you know, a, 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 a time schedule or, 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 uh, or having an eight to five schedule or this meeting and that meeting, they have control over their time. And, and I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm very, as you very well know, I have a very leveraged schedule. Um, but that's partially because I love helping people. And so I always, you know, typically say yes and, and have boundaries around that for sure and, and have to. Um, but the reality is, is that I think that most, it has nothing to do with, with money. It, it really doesn't. I, I, I could care less about that. I, I have had incredible levels of success, in my opinion, absent of, of finances, um, and, and so a lot of it truly has to do with impact on other people, having control over time and being able to invest in you, uh, you, you know, yourself, you, you know, rather than, rather than investing in other things, you know, whether those be vices or the way that you use your time, quite frankly. Yeah. And I, I found it interesting that you said, you don't think that they're there yet. Cause there's just different levels of life, right? Like different levels of our career that we're always just trying to strive for the next level. And even like a Jonathan or go to a Warren Buffett, like 90 some years old, still working, still trying to grow, still trying to get to the next level. So then I asked like Jonathan that question one time. I was like, you know, when is enough enough? When do you know you're successful? He's like, I don't know. Like, cause I haven't been there yet. So it's just, I think it's just that driver in us too, that always wants to push to the next level. I, I totally agree with you. 110%. Next question is, so how do you come out of that? Like in, of that situation? Not like... Like how do you, how do you know where to start over? Like, how do you know what you're going to go do next? Like, how do you know what your next act was going to be? How did you start consulting? How did you end up on the stage at playing it? And then all of a sudden you're in an email thread with J Jonathan, right? And that's how you guys kind of met through email. Like, how does that happen? So it's an interesting story. So if you, if you follow the timeline, you know, I was in this massive adversity from 2008 to 2012. My court case was officially over with in 2014. Um, but in 2005, when I did the deal with my last set of partners, 
um, that's when I stumbled upon the Colby index and, and been, so been Colby certified, you know, since, since January of 2006, have a couple of awards behind me, you know, for the work that we've done in Colby and very proud of that. And I, and I, I be, I became exposed to the Colby index, um, because I thought that it would help our organization and it helped our organization at some level. And I wanted to learn more about it. So I jumped on a plane and I went to Phoenix and I got Colby certified and so I was in, that was in January of 2006. Okay. And, um, and after that, I started a consulting company. I was still in my, and at my, at my time frame, I was in my highest level of success. So I started my consulting company in 2006. A lot of people don't understand that. They thought I started my consulting company after I got out of the contracting business. No, not the case at all. I had the prevision that I wanted to go help other people. I was still in that journey. I'm still in that journey today to figure out what that looks like. So in 2006, I started my consulting company and little did I know, you just brought it up, that in 2000, I think it was eight, before the economy went crazy bad, I got a phone call from from Planet. I had always been involved in leadership. I helped develop the current certified landscape professional uh, designation, um, had done a lot in certification and and still certified to this day, um, renew my certification annually. And what I, and so what the crazy part was is that in early 2008, I got a phone call about a person who was on the board of directors for Planet. And um, they had just found out that, that she was going to have her first child and she no longer wanted to serve the association. So that allowed the association to name someone to be in the track to be president of the association. And they, they, they contacted me and asked me if I wanted to jump in leadership. And I'm so, man, I'm going to not do the math well, even though I'm a math guy. So in 2008, I'm 25 years, no, 35 years old. Sorry, 35 years old. So in 2008, I'm, I'm in the, I'm 34, 35 years old. And they asked me if I would jump in to the executive track, which basically means that I am a shoe in to be president of the organization. And I said, yes, I was doing consulting and I thought, oh, you know what? This is one way to give back. I'll give back to this association. I'll give back. I had already, you know, identified that I, I, I love teaching. I love being on stage. Um, I, I, I felt like at that time I was good at it. I was, I was a good uh, on stage speaker and, um, in more of a facilitated way, maybe not me creating the educational content like I do today, but more where someone else was creating the content and I just got to go up and be an MC, things like that. So I became on the executive track, which means that I was president of Planet in 2009 and, and, and didn't know that adversity was going to strike. And I remember having to go to my 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 fellow leaders in the executive track saying my business is struggling this thing is going on and they said you're ready you're ready to go do this you're ready to go tell your story and i started telling my story i started telling my story i believe that it was in march of 2009 on stage at planet student career days as everybody's businesses was being tarnished i mean at that point the economy mortgages and all this crud was going on in the world. And I was able to get up and give a message of hope. 
That was the beginning, Jonas, for me to say that's what's going to happen. So I started my consulting business in 2006. Three years later, I'm on stage in front of thousands of people giving a message of hope while people are worried about the industry and the future and money and, and you know lenders and all this kind of stuff. And I was able to give that message of hope. And then just a handful of years later, right? Handful of years later, I'm attached onto this email that you had mentioned. I'm attached onto this email. Jonathan was on this email. He he was reading through the email string. He saw my um, signature line that said that I was Colby certified. And he sent me an email that said, hey, my name is Jonathan Potoshnik. I own a lawn care company down in Dallas, Texas. I see your Colby certified. Would you be willing to get on a call and talk to me about my Colby result? Well, sure I will, because that's some, it's one of the sections of my business. I had no clue who Jonathan was. He had no clue who I was, even though we were running very parallel tracks in terms of, of, of people that we knew and, and, and all of that. And it, it's a story that's been told so many times by him and by me up on stage and on Academy calls and, and privately um, that little did I know that whatever it was nine or 10 years ago um, that, that, you know, he had said to me in that email, he goes, Hey, do you ever get to Dallas? I had a client at the time in Fort Worth, Texas. And he said, Hey, next time you're in Fort Worth, you know, add an extra half day, let's go to lunch. I did that. And it's the famous lunch that turned into dinner. I ended up changing my flight and flying home the next day. We started talking and we realized that we loved all of the same things in life. Our personal lives were very similar. Um, commitment to family, commitment to travel, loved, loved connecting with friends, uh, loved adventure, um, loved international travel, um, loved cars, uh, loved, um, uh, our, our parents are exactly the same age. And, um, and then we, and then we started talking about business and we realized we have the same philosophy of business and business owners and finances. And I told them about the adversity that I was going through and, 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 it was like crazy. It was like in this six or eight hour period of time as, as we had lunch and then ended up going to dinner, you know, we, we, we created this friendship that now is, you know, is, 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 is true and real and so on and so forth. It's nuts, man, when you sit and think about it. And, um, and, and, and so anyway, I mean, that gets me to how I met Jonathan and, and, it was this, I remember, man, I met with him in Dallas a month before SA1 and he invited me to the service autopilot conference. The first one, I don't know when that is. You could probably figure out when it is and, and connect the dots time-wise. I think it was, I'm guessing it was 2013, maybe 2014, somewhere in there. And um, he invited me to it, but I had a conflict. I had another event that I was supposed to be at, but then he made sure that I was at Service Autopilot 2. And I was the keynote speaker. I gave, I think, four or five talks at Service Autopilot 2 and then have spoken at every single Service Autopilot conference since then, including this one that's coming up in another month. The point would be is that our friendship is based on friendship. We, we have a very, very, very extreme closeness Um and, um, and then that translated into doing a lot of really great things, you know, I think in terms of impact for other people that quite frankly, going back to the humble statement, we have no clue that that impact occurred. And it's hard for us to hear when, you know, guys like you share that it's like, wow, really? That's amazing. And I, and I think you guys probably that. underestimate the impact that you've had on all over the country. Like from the videos you guys have on YouTube to the, to the podcast that you guys have done to the the speaking engagements that you've done, like every person that I talk to in the industry knows who you are. Watch Jonathan's videos. Like 
it, you guys, it's beyond what you guys even think. Like, you, I don't think you guys really realize the impact you've really created. I'm going to go back to this, but because we're on the Jonathan topic, how instrumental has he been to your life? Life changing. Same. So I'll tell one story of impact that, that, that absolutely personifies who Jonathan Potoshnik is in my life. Um, many people know that, you know, a little over four years ago, my mom passed away um, and she passed away the first week of September. The week before that, um, Jonathan, you know, did did a deal, um, a business deal, probably the, the biggest, most important business deal of his entire career. And when he heard that my mom passed away, he was on the first plane to Kansas City. He was here. He stood in my kitchen. He helped me. He attended my mom's services. He gave me lots of hugs. He connected with my family. He met everybody. That's that man. People who are focused on themselves, because he's doesn't, he's not, he's focused on others. They don't leave town right when a big thing is going on in life, which that was a big thing that was gone on in his life. And I will never forget that for the rest of my life. Never forget yeah. that for the rest of my life. He's amazing. Just he's an amazing, he amazing human being. And I and I told I told Rhonda, his assistant at the time, I said, Don't, no, don't do this. She goes, You're not talking him out of this. Plane's already booked. He's on his way. You just don't even just 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 say thank you. Just say okay. He needs to be there for his friend. And sure as heck he was and is. And and to this day, whether it's something personal or whether it's something business or whether it's something, you know, we have a lot of things that we talk about that no one else talks about with him or no one else talks about with me. And I know that he's a trusted confidant. He knows that about me as well. Um, I'm very, 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 very grateful for him um, and, and the encouragement that he has given me. But also, and you know this about him, his gentle call out of things that yes. I need to do differently. Yeah. And the way that that gentle call out is, and I'm very grateful for him. He knows that I tell it to him all the time. You know, when we were, um, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm okay saying this because it's true. And people that know both of us need to know that this is the way that we're wired. When we were sitting in the back of the room and we were watching the biggest badass videos the last time that we were in Dallas watching those biggest badass videos and every single person that was on that screen mentioned him, certainly mentioned me. I leaned over to him. We're sitting right next to one another and I go, well done, brother. And he leans over and he goes, well done, brother. Like the point is, is that his impact on the masses <laughs> is monumental but he never makes it about himself. He immediately turned it right back onto me, right? And said, no, you did good. Like, he's just such an amazing guy. And anyway, you know, I don't want to put him on a pedestal any more than he is, but I mean, he's a great friend. And um, I have I have months and months and months of great memories that, you know, that and, and they're going to continue, you know? Like I said, I talk to him almost every single day. So well, the last uh, the last time you watch videos, thanks for voting for me. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I never reveal who who I who I vote for in those. So yeah, for sure. I was just giving you a hard time. Um, but we talked about Colby a little bit. I had it written down, kind of slid over. But for the listeners that are that maybe don't know what Colby is, can you just walk us through what a Colby is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
So Colby A index uh, measures a person's natural instincts. Those natural instincts don't change over time. So they're reliable and predictable to build leadership teams, um, to solve problems, to understand the way that a team member is going to instinctively work and operate, complete tasks, deal with adversity, communicate. And it's a tool that that I've used with, gosh, I don't know, six, seven, eight thousand, ten thousand people. I don't know. I lose track. I'd have to look look in and see how many people you know we've issued Colby A indexes to over the years. Um, but it's a really, really, really amazing tool. It's not a personality test, not a Myers-Briggs or predictive index or anything like that. It measures a person's natural instincts. Those instincts are born into us, like I said. And and so it, it allows us to really understand the way the person is going to go and do a work product or work through an issue that they have uh, in, in business or even in their personal life. And it creates a lot of reliability about what that's going to be. And so it's a it's a tool that we use. We use it on the HR side of our business too. Um, we use a, a tool called RightFit, and it helps us to predict uh, more of, of of how to make a better hire instinctively. Um, you know, hiring is hard enough as it is, right? And so when we know that a, the way that a person is instinctually wired, and then we also know what instincts are necessary for a job, there's a tool that we have that smashes all that together. It's called Colby RightFit that predicts whether or not that team member or future team member will be able to instinctively operate within um, a, 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 the zone of how that job needs to needs to kind of play out. So it's a great tool that that um, that 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 really helps businesses build teams and invest in teams. It also helps, you know, any way you cut it, when you have people that work together, they don't always get along. I don't know if you knew that or not. They don't always get along. And the Colby A index and an A to A um, index that we have where it talks about how two people work alongside one another, it really gives almost a, some guideposts in the way that people are going to instinctively work together and helps solve that conflict and those concerns and those issues that exist um, just in building teams. And, and also, who do we hire next? And what does that index need to look like. So it's a really, really, really fun tool that we use a lot. We use it almost every single day in our business to help business owners run a better business, be a better leader, communicate differently to their team, build the right team, make the right hire, solve that concern or that problem that might exist amongst amongst the team members and and the people that, you know, they're out there on the front lines every single day working in the business to make it successful. I like that. So can we use me as an example? We've done this before, you and I. So yeah, nothing new. Course. I'll give you Absolutely. my number. I'll give you my yeah. numbers. You can kind of explain what they are, what, what my sure. watch outs are, what, what I focus mm-hmm. on uh, as, sure. a, as a visionary. So I'm a 3278. 3278. So in the world of Colby, we we focus on that number, the, the two numbers that are over seven. So that's your seven, eight, your last two numbers. Um, the eight is what's called implementer. Um, and the seven is what's called quick start. Let me unpack that. So someone who's who's initiating implementer, dominant implementer, that's their main instinct, like you are, Jonas. They like to do and they like to do themselves with their hands. They like to they, they like to assure in their own mind and their own efforts that quality is there. They like tools. They like to build things physically with their hands. Kathy Colby uses uh, the the she in recent years she's talked about haptics. How it's the haptics are the use of your fingers and your digits to accomplish things. Um, so oftentimes people hobby wise they they might be musicians or they might be woodworkers. They might like to paint. Um, they might like to do crafts or gardening, things that are very individualistic in nature. Um, doesn't mean they can't work on a team. It just means that's their happy place. You know, They might wake up on a Saturday morning and run to Home Depot and do a project that day, fix a leaky faucet, paint a bedroom that needs to be painted. That's where they 
get their energy from. Um, and so it's very hands-on. It's, it's, it's really being in the mode of helping deliver the quality. That is your eight in implementer. Your seven in quick start means that you're going to think outside the box. You're going to love change. You're going to do things at the last minute. You're going to have multiple solutions to one problem. You're going to make decisions with your gut. And that gut instinct is going to often be right and correct. You don't have to prepare for much. My guess is you made a couple of notes to prepare for this, but you don't have like a... You know, like a big long string of things that you you know that you want to talk about. You might have a couple of bullets where you know five. people. I mean, sometimes, yeah, some people. Right, you have five things. I, I would have none because I'm a nine <laughs> quick start. And, you know, like I don't. I, but I those five, but that. those five but, include Jason Cup, Kansas City, <laughs> Kincaid HR. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. So the point is, is that you don't have to do a lot of prep. You can do things at the last minute. And that's going to be your best work. You know, your best work is at the last minute. If you go to prepare for something, it's not going to be nearly as successful as you hope that it's going to be. You know, it's going to be successful, but it's going to come at a little bit of an energy price to you. You know, I mean, when I when I joined you, you know, um, uh, t- today, I mean, I literally came from the coffee maker, sat down, you know, hit the button to join. I did, did no prep whatsoever. I just come off of another call, hung up my phone, came in. And most people, when they're going to record something like this or, you know, get on and, you know, and, and talk for a while, they've got a script. You know, they have to write it out. They have to think about it. I have nothing in front of me other than, you know, you, you on the screen and, 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 my, and my microphone, right? Right? Well, that's okay. Is my way better or is your way better? No, it's the way that we do things. And so it's a really cool thing. So that is the that is what that's what your results, you know, with those two, that seven and eight in your quick start and your implementer, that's what that means. Uh, you're a two in fact finder, correct? Yep. And you're a three in, in follow through. Follow through. Yep. Okay. So the two in fact finder, that's the first number. That means you don't need details. No, I, you, don't want it, you don't want it's, an information. It's, it's opposite. It's three, two. Oh, I'm sorry. Same thing. Three is the same as two for the most part. So three in fact finder means you don't need information. You don't need details. You don't need statistics. You don't really care at some level about needing to know the metrics. You want to know the metrics are right. You'd rather somebody else figure out those metrics and tell you that they're right. Your two and follow through means you don't want to follow a schedule. Um, you're okay shuffling the deck in terms of changes. I mean, you know, we tried to record this and I, I had a I, I had a conflict and had to cancel at the last minute. You're like, no, nope, no problem. Let's just reschedule it. No big deal. Some people who've been preparing for it and need to follow a schedule, that's like not good for them. They don't like the fact that they have to shuffle the deck and reschedule something. Um, and so really, okay, so if I unpack it, you don't need details. You don't want to follow a schedule. You love change and love thinking outside the box. And you want to make sure that it's done right uh, with, with a level of degree of accuracy. And sometimes doing it right means that you've got to either do it yourself or get your eyes on it to make sure that it's been done yourself. Once you have a check mark in all those boxes, you're golden. But if somebody says to you in, in your business, if somebody says, hey, you know, I got this project done and it was done right, you might say, all right, shoot me a picture or, you know, how did it end out or end up or tell me a little bit about it. Or if it's close by or it's nearby, you might swing by and take a peek at it. That's not you micromanaging. That's just your need to put a check mark in the box of what you need instinctively. Totally fine. I'm a two and implementer. I believe that 
I believe that the the best work that we're going to do is going to be done by somebody else, probably not by me. I don't need to check it. I don't need to I don't need to make sure that it's done right. I might ask a couple of probing questions, but I do not need to get my eyes on it. Especially if that team member has built up trust in my eyes, then it's kind of like, nope, you go do your job. Stay in your lane. You're an expert in that realm. Let's go run with it, right? Yep, 100%. Hands down. So even like both my CFO is like, okay, send me these five numbers every two weeks. And that's all I need to see. They look glance at those. Yep. If one, if they look good, great. If they look bad, I'm like, okay, well, what's up with this one? That's all yep. I need to see. Same thing with yep. marketing. Like just tell me the totally. quick details and how long am I going to spend that? Probably like 30, 30 seconds. I'll glance at it real quick and I'll look up and move on to the next thing. Sure. Uh, what, are, totally. what would be, what would you say are my watch outs? So I think that your watch outs, um, so your aid and implementer, your watch out is for, I call it overworking in the moment, meaning doing more work necessary to assure that level of quality than what is required by the organization, the client, um, your family, whatever it might be that it's that, and you know, and I don't know that this is you, so I'm throwing this scenario out there, but you know, that person who is a perfectionist. Okay. And they, they need to make sure that it's done perfection, you know, and perfection in their eyes is not perfection in mine or anybody else's. Right. And so they continue to work on it to get it absolutely perfect. That is what they need. So I think that's a watch out, making sure that your perfectionism, which is need needed and required, I'm never going to argue with it. It's also not an excuse, right? Isn't more than what the recipient needs, Right. Um, and, and to really make sure that that's a watch out. The other watch out with your quick start will be, and I struggle with this as well, is that we move at an alarming pace. Um, and sometimes that's very overwhelming to people around us that are that don't move at the same alarming pace. I oftentimes would say that I've, I've taken, I'm in this uh, private um, with, with all my car friends, I'm in this big, long uh, Facebook messenger group. And we just, we just talk and, you know, laugh about things all day long. And sometimes I will take a screenshot of my calendar when they're messaging, 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 messaging throughout the day saying, hey, guys, I'll get to you later tonight. And and I'm shocked at how much activity I get done back to back to back to back to back calls or Zooms or meetings or whatever it is. Well, no big deal. I don't care. I love it. I'm a nine and quick start. Right. And that can be overwhelming to some people that that are around you and also that that eight in or seven in quick start, I apologize, a seven in quick start, sometimes you like to change things at the very last minute. And a lot of people don't like that. You know, I mean, I know I do. I will drop something on somebody at the very last minute and be like, hey, can we get this done? And it's not me being disrespective or me not preparing for something or anything like that. It's literally this element of, hey, this, you know, this just needs to be done. And I'm just kind of, you know, getting it off, you know, getting it off my plate. And I think that it, it's interesting when you sit and you think about that, what that looks like, where when you go and you do that, that feels right to you, but it doesn't feel right to somebody else. So that's a watch out, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just funny, like, not funny, but it's, it's it's good to know these things about yourself. Like, so what I did is like, because I'm such a quick start and I, and I like bounce it from one thing to the next and I have ideas all the time. I got really good at filtering out my own ideas and like writing them down and then like, then say making these things a priority from top to bottom. And like at the end of the week, if I was like, Oh, this really isn't a priority, we're just exit off. So by the time that it goes to my team, like they know it's pretty important because I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks. So I'll just write my quick start brain. And I'll just write it down my notes and I'll just like 
check it every once in a while to make sure that I still want to do that thing. And so I like right. almost like a filtering system that I've created for myself. And then not only that, but like knowing your Kobe scores and hiring the total opposite people around you, roughly, you know, like an eight, eight, you know, three, two, blah, blah, blah. Having those people that are high in fact finding high in follow through to make sure that things are getting done. Mm-hmm. So it's just, totally it's great agree. to know all this stuff. I totally agree. So Jason, you've talked a lot about, uh, you know, building a team through, you know, zero to 500, 500 to a million. Um, mm -hmm. What are the, some of those key employees that you need? I know a lot of people talk about the operations manager. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah. So I, th I think it's interesting, you know, whether you're, um, I, I kind of call it home services, you know, so whether you're doing lawn care or fertilization, pest control, irrigation, holiday lighting, whatever it is, I believe that there in most marketplaces, there's these particular bands of business. Zero to five hundred thousand dollars in sales, five hundred to a million, and a million over. Let me unpack it. Zero to five hundred is where the majority of the people in the home services industry lie. I mean, the, the greater majority of the companies, that's where their revenue is. They never get over a half a million bucks. That's no problem. Oftentimes, that's that's owner operator. The owner is actually out doing some of the work. They might have a handful of helpers that help them. A couple of employees. They usually are singular in their services. And it's really hard to have the financial wherewithal to go and build a team at zero to 500,000. 500,000 to a million, I call it awkward teenager stage. It is very challenging. I hated it's that. Capital, in capital intensive. You're borrowing money. You're figuring out pricing. You're hiring kind of pseudo managers because that's all you can afford. And I tell people that do whatever you can to pop themselves from 500 to a million as quickly as you can um, and try to do it with as little debt as possible. And that's probably the mode that most business owners are going to work their hardest. They're going to work a hundred hours a week, maybe. And I'm not even exaggerating because they have a whole bunch of hats on. They're the salesperson. They're doing the bookkeeping. They're answering the phones. They're fixing equipment after hours. They're maybe on a cruise still. It is a challenge. But anybody that's listening to it, I mean, I have walked, I don't know, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of clients and friends and, and people that, you know, that I've known over the years through that awkward teenager stage of 500 to a million. But what you have to try to do in there in terms of building the team is you've got to identify your silos. You've heard me talk a lot about silos over the years, Jonas. Um, and, and in most businesses, not all, the silos would be an administrative and finance silo. It's where insurance is, billing your clients, paying your bills, um, you know, managing the office. Then you've got your sales and account management, marketing silo. That's where you're selling your work. That's where you're, you're building your, your, your messaging and your client acquisition strategy. And then you've got your operational role. The, all three of those are linked. Okay, but they're very distinct people that can run each one of those. And I believe that between 500 and a million, that owner needs to think, number one, which silo do they want to lead? Okay, are they great at sales and marketing? That was where that was a silo that I led. I am not an operations same. guy, and at the time, same, I wasn't same. a finance and admin guy. I hired someone to run our books, they did a great job. And, at, and through a handful of iterations, I hired somebody. It was a great operations person. So from 500 to a million, you got to identify who in the organization can pop up and run those silos, who, who absolutely has the ability to just instinctively, the Colby stuff, but also from a skill standpoint to run the organization in those silos. Because once you get over a million, you need to have those leaders in those silos. And then you almost just begin to duplicate client acquisition, 
operational strategies, financial wherewithal. You begin to duplicate the activities that happen in all the silos. Now, some companies have a fourth silo. Some companies have a fifth silo. I don't see too many five silo companies. Mostly it's three. Sometimes it's four. And so if you think about what that is, okay, your operations, I believe that the operations manager in a home services industry, which includes pest control, is the number one most important um important role and position in the business. And you want someone who's logistically thinking, that thinks about schedules and how to solve problems when equipment breaks down. You want someone that understands the power of building uh, route density and, and, and what happens if you get rain halfway through a day or what happens if someone doesn't show up who's a key team member because they're sick or whatever that is. You need somebody who's constantly shuffling the deck in terms of logistics. They are an internally focused person that thinks about everything that needs to occur in an organization, how much materials we need to buy, when they need to be there, what the terms are, how much we're, uh, how much materials we're using, what crew is going to do that, what equipment is needed, what the repair schedule is on that equipment, how we build route density in this neighborhood or this community so that we can keep our drive time in between uh, properties at an absolute minimum. That's the way that they need to be wired. And we can use Colby to figure out in that organization, you know, what that is and who that person needs to be. We can use that right fit system to go and figure that out, right? Then, then we go and we look, okay, who do we need in that admin and finance silo? We need somebody who probably has a background in customer service, maybe uh, bookkeeping, administration, understanding the way that insurance policies work. They understand telephones and technology and, 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 uh, and whatever software is being used, like service autopilot in the organization. They're the ones that's managing all of that client touch often um, after they've been a client and all of the back office, making sure that clients get billed and the credit cards get run and the deposits get paid and credit cards get paid, um, you know, that, that vendors get paid and all of that. Sales marketing need to understand the funnel, need to understand client acquisition strategies, CAC, client acquisition costs. They need to understand whether or not those, those leads are converting, what that conversion rate is. They need to understand all that. So it's finding the skill that's going to lead each one of those silos and then the instincts that apply to those silos based on what that top level job description is. And then when you have those people, then you get to build in the team below them. As the business grows, you just add additional team members underneath that leader to help accommodate the growth in the organization. This is key and paramount to building an organization. I'm convinced more and more and more as I go through the life of helping people in their businesses that your team and who you build up around you is one of the most paramount and most important focuses that you ever, ever, ever could have in your business. If you're trying to build a company and you're not focusing on the team, shame on you because I think you're missing the boat in a huge, huge, huge way. Yeah, that was a great answer. A lot to unpack there. Where do you think that, why do you think companies bottleneck? Or why do you think they plateau? Maybe is a better question at certain specific revenues for maybe one or two years. You see it all the time. Why do you think that is? Man, that's do you, a big do you question. Think, do you think it's because of the team? Like, because Jonathan always said to hire faster. And back then, my squirrel brain is like, okay, I see a guy. Oh, I need to hire another technician. I hire a technician. But that's not the people he was actually talking about. It's the people that you can hire that can really move the needle. Yeah. So, so I believe, you know, as you know, I would say maybe 
2023, probably the last four years, I think that Jonathan, we've always talked about how the team is really important, okay? But I believe that Jonathan and I, even in our private discussions about what we wanted business owners to really pick up on, we really focused on hiring the next best employee that's going to move the team forward. Um, I take that same advice in my organization. You know many of my team members. I mean, you know, they're A-plus all-stars that just do what needs to occur every single day and deliver what I would believe, and I know I'm biased, you know, an amazing reaction and communication, you know, to our clients. And so, but I'm taking that same advice that you, you, I believe that building a business is more about building the team than building the clients. That's a little bit weird. And I know I, I saw you've had John DeCosmaker on, on, on the show, right? Yep. So, you know, J- John was in our Academy Elite and a great friend of mine, you know, client and good buddy, awesome guy. He said something that I give him credit for all the time. We're at an Academy Elite trip, and he said, Service Autopilot Academy Elite, for those that don't know, John and I were leading a session on hiring, and and John said, man, why don't we put as much effort into hiring our team as we do in acquiring our client? And I'm telling you what, John changed my mindset on it. In that day, I've told him that many times. I've told this story many times. I give him all the credit in the world for saying that because every business really focuses on how they're going to increase their revenue. And then oftentimes they increase their revenue and they fall flat on their face because they didn't increase all of the positions they needed to deliver that revenue, like in operations and admin, go back to the silos, right? And I believe that one of the best investments that we can make in business is in that forward-thinking team member who's going to be a change agent in our organization that's going to allow us to go and grow, that's going to take the pressure off the organization And then it becomes real easy to pop the clients in on the backside because the organization is built via structure and processes and people and a great product and finances behind that to go and accommodate that growth. And I think that that is absolutely powerful. And I think it's paramount. And most people have it the opposite. You know, you've made me heard, heard me say, do we go and chase revenue or do we go and chase expenses? And Business owners all the time are chasing expenses. They build up expense in their business. They're like, oh my gosh, I just bought this truck. I just leased this property. I just engaged this marketing firm. I just hired this new employee. Now I got to go get a bunch of revenue to pay for that. But why not go and do the opposite, right? Why not go and build the business up where you have a plan and the plan is the opposite of what everybody else is doing? right? You build the revenue up and you go chase that revenue. That's what I did almost my entire career. And I plugged in the expenses at the time that they needed to be rather than taking on a lot of overhead, hoping that I was going to go and sell it. Now, there's exceptions to that rule, obviously, especially if you're going to go hire the next best greatest person. But the times that I've done that, that money is in the bank. It is there. It is allocated. I didn't borrow to do it. I didn't go and tap out investments or anything like that. No, it's sitting over there. And that's worthy of investment in the business to be able to go and invest in the company, to be able to grow it in the right way. So many people go into debt to go and do that. And every person's situation is different. But do we chase revenue or do we chase expenses? Big key question. And who's the next best, greatest employee that can move the ball forward, take pressure off the organization to be able to go and grow the business? Yeah, so I'm going to unpack that a little bit for the listeners. What I think you're talking about is like, hey, go out in the springtime and sell a boatload of work. Don't have the equipment to provide the work yet because you don't exactly need it. 
yep. take it, take on the money, like on the prepays or whatever they may be. You build that big client list. And then once you start, then go buy that thing, right? That piece of equipment or truck or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and oftentimes it's, it's, it's kind of in this reaction mode to go and do it. And I don't know that the reaction mode is the right way to go and do it or not. You know, I mean, I mean, to have a yeah. plan and to have the finances to go and do that plan is, is really, really, really key and paramount. I mean, there's a lot of people that call me that say, Hey, I'm, I'm cash flow negative or I don't have any money. And it often comes back to they overbuilt the business and didn't acquire the clients. Then they got into a level of desperation. And then they started discounting or they started doing all kinds of different things, which I don't I don't agree with that at all. So there's all kinds of different ways that you choose your own adventure in this thing, but it really comes with a plan. It's the reason why most businesses in their off season, if they have one, need to create a plan. They need to understand what that plan is and they need to be able to have people and processes in the organization to be able to execute that plan. And I think that it's really unfortunate that so many people just fling the gates open in the beginning of the season and hope that all the finances are going to come through. And I won't mention it in total theory, but I mean, there's some people out there that say that sales solves everything. All you got to do is punch revenue in to the organization. If that revenue isn't profitable and you don't have a plan and you don't have the people around it, you don't have the assets needed or a plan to acquire the assets, revenue is not going to solve your problem. Sometimes actually reversing revenue solves the problem. Like going after your most profitable revenue is what actually solves the problem that exists in the business. Not in all scenarios, but in some scenarios for sure. Yeah, I agree with that 100% because I'm that person who's like, this model just isn't working. Like I'm spending my money, like it's just not, it's not working no matter what I do. So then I just changed the model. I chased the highest, you know, profit service. That's what I did. Um, yep. Before I switch gears, to like what Kincaid does now for everyone else so we can get that out there. But how does Jason Cup become so good at financials? <laughs> well, go back to adversity and going and figuring it out. And, and I give all the credit in the entire world to my accounting teacher, Dina Della Sega. She's no longer alive, but I, before she passed away, I thanked her. She taught me everything that I know about financials today. She took complexities and made it very, very, very simple. Okay. And when you take complexities and you make it very, very, very simple, a common person can understand it. I think that, so here, here's, my, here's my overarching thought on financials. CPAs are great. CPAs' role in an organization is to file a tax return. That is their only role is to tell you tax planning. They do not tell you. I know very few, and I know lots of CPAs all over the United States. They do not tell you how to run a more profitable business. They might say, hey, you're not making enough money or you're making too much money or this is what you need to do to save on taxes, but they don't analyze financials, okay? So that's the first mistake. Most people hire a CPA and say, tell me what I'm supposed to do, right? Well, they don't usually. They want to just file your taxes. That's what they're good at, have the CPA file the taxes. Then you need to understand your finances. You need to understand your business, the way you make money, the way you don't make money, what your overhead is, what your debt service is, what your distributions are, what your cash flow is, what your balance sheet is, what your profit and loss statement is, what your accounts receivable, your accounts payable, credit cards, lines of credit, sales tax, payroll tax. You need to understand all that. And if somebody's listening to this now, going, well, I don't know what that means, which is like most small business owners, you've got to find a way to go and figure that out. It's key and paramount. 
Um, I flew blind for a period of time. I said that earlier that, you know, we just had such a successful business that I always, you know, had the money to be able to do what I needed to do. Man, Jonas, I'm telling you, if I would have rewound the tape and I would have applied 10% of what I teach now to my business when we were doing $10 million a year in business, I probably wouldn't be here for a different reason because I would have right. done so well in my business. That, I mean, in most businesses, I feel like that they leave somewhere between 5 to maybe upwards of 20% on the table in inefficiencies or money that doesn't need to be spent and so on and so forth. And, um, and so it, it, it's interesting when you kind of begin to take something that's really complex. I know numbers are complex and financial statements are complex and you get that down into something simple. So how did I do it? I figured out that I didn't understand it at a key and paramount time in my own career that I needed to understand it. So I needed to go and figure this out. And I literally printed out my own financial statements and I figured it out and I created, I guess you'd call my system, you know, um, and it's similar to others. I'm not saying that it's anything unique, but it's my way of looking at things to benchmark success in a business to create ultimately more cash flow, which then reduces debt or puts more money into business owners' pockets or creates more overall cash to be able to grow the business. I mean, the majority of our clients now, as interest rates have gone up, you know, to go buy a truck now, you might be able to find something in the sixes. It might be a lot higher than that. Most of my clients now have the ability to either pay cash for their equipment to avert that, or our our firm has figured out a way to margin those interest rates down. Most auto loans that are six, seven, eight percent, we can margin them down. I'm not going to explain it; it's too complex, but we can margin them down into the maybe upper twos, threes, or fours, depending on the strength of the balance sheet of the organization. Well, so if you don't have cash, you can't do that. And so building up cash in an organization is absolutely key and paramount to be able to run a long-term successful company. What do you like the cash in the bank to be as far as like any revenue per month or? Yeah, great. So um, so I say that it's either uh, two months of your overhead, you know, so if your overhead's 50 grand a month, you need a hundred, you know, you basically need to like that two months emergency stash or if you don't want to figure out what that is, um, somewhere between 10 and 20% of annual revenue. So if you do a million dollars, I want you to have a couple of hundred grand in the bank. And that is as best as you can, as best as you can, restricted money, meaning you don't touch it unless you have to. That's the comfort level that I think you really need to do. If you don't have that, you could, you're, you could be one or two or three unknown expenses away from being cash flow negative and being worrying about making payroll. You know, that could be an engine that blows on a truck and you got to pay 20 grand for a new diesel engine. That could be an injury that occurs, you know, that you pay out of pocket. That could be uh, an issue with a client where you have to hire an attorney. And all of those things, unfortunately, do happen in business. And all of a sudden, it's an unplanned expense that can be a massive problem and a massive issue. Yep. Great, great answer. Um, let's kind of switch gears to Kincaid. Uh, what, like what you're doing now, what are you up to these days? Like what all does Kincaid do? Like, I know you have a lot going on. I know you're like a, a fractional CFO at maybe at other businesses still too. So you have a lot of, uh, pieces out there. So can you just unpack it all for us and just kind of tell us what Kincaid does and how you can help the listeners? 
Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're divided up into a, a handful of silos ourselves, if you will. Um, you know, one silo is the Colby silo. We've already talked about that's where our team building is. That's where we have some hiring platforms that we operate in, um, individual coaching, setting leaders up to the highest level of success, um, working with teams and doing what we call a team success seminar where, you know, we do a, a complete, you know, virtual or in-person uh, team building session. Super fun. Um, and, and really gets the team to be locked in with Colby. So that's the Colby piece. Um, then we've got our HR side, um, got, you know, our, our HR company that provides day-to-day HR services to small business owners. One of the things that we found out about five years ago, maybe even six years ago, is that most small business owners don't understand what HR is, let alone understand the federal and state and local compliance that they need to follow. And, uh, and so we've got a, what we call an HR specialist who's also a generalist um, on our team. She's been on our team for, gosh, I think five years now, maybe four, long time, um, where she just helps clients every day solve HR problems. That could be a hiring. That could be a, a difficult conversation with a team member who's not performing. That could be write-ups. That could be a handbook, um, which every company, if you have two or more employees, needs a handbook. Um you know, most of our clients know that that handbook ends up saving them some pain later when something doesn't go right. And unfortunately, things don't go right all the time. Um, so, you know, she is actively involved in solving that HR problem, answering maybe a wage question or a wage dispute, looking at state and local laws, federal laws to making sure that the company is compliant, uh, doing uh, annual uh, audits to make sure that that compliance is, is continuing. Um, and so we've got the HR side. Then we've got our, our, our financials side. So we, we, we have a, a product that, that we review companies' financials monthly after, they've, after the bookkeeper CPA has got them reconciled or an internal person got them reconciled. We review the financials. We apply our metrics. We get on a call. We, we, we walk people through the success parts or the whys of their financials. If they're doing really well, we identify the why and we tell them to do more of that. It's specific to company. It's not, it's not um, boilerplate. It is literally we get to know the company. We understand their profit and loss statement. We understand their debt service. We understand their distributions. We understand their balance sheet. And we do a review of that every single month. The idea behind that would be is that if something isn't going right in a business, we don't want to find out at the end of the year. We want to find out weeks after that's not going right. Is it five payrolls? Is it that engine that blew up in a truck? Is it is it the fact that you, know, you had a really inefficient crew? And when we see those metrics not be right compared to your past performance and also compared to your peers' performance. Because we're looking at so many sets of financials, we know what those ratios need to be. If something is systemic and a problem, then I get involved in it. You know, that could be an IRS problem. That could be a problem with a lender. That could be a massive overhead problem or a debt problem. I'm going to jump in on it with my team and say, hey, here's what we need to do. Here's the steps that we have to operate through. So that's that's really, really, really fun in, in terms of reviewing the financials. But then another thing that we figured out, so then we're not the next silo, is that a lot of small business owners don't understand bookkeeping, the day-to-day part. Their books are wrong. They don't understand what a reconciliation is. They don't understand bank feeds and QuickBooks Online or their accounting software. They don't understand how to categorize right. They don't understand how to enter payrolls right. And so now we have um, a, a, a part of our team who's helping people fix their QuickBooks, get their books right, and then helping them maintain those books 
so that then we can analyze them. So it's really kind of cool. We really focused a lot on this financial piece. You mentioned the fractional CFO. Unfortunately, we're not doing a lot of that anymore. I do have several of those contracts. There are legacy contracts that have been there for a long time. I'm still doing it. I still understand top level budgeting and all of that. And I will absolutely always get on a call with somebody who's running into questions or problems that they have and definitely work with our clientele in that regard. But I'm not the named CFO. I'm only the named CFO of a few companies anymore. It used to be a lot more than that. Um, it's a lot of work and a lot of day-to-day work that I just didn't have the time for. And then two other buckets, and they're kind of all mixed together because most people, quite frankly, come to us and we do a lot of these things for them. The other bucket would be just our general consulting. I've got this problem with the client. I need to renew my insurance. I got this phone call from this person. I got this letter in the mail. I'm trying to work on my marketing plan. I've got this problem with a business partner. I work with my family and I'm not getting along well with my brother, sister, wife, son, child, grandparent, father, whatever it is in the business. We have that entire you know transaction as well, and and that's and then we've got kind of the everything else bucket. That's the crisis budget bucket. The IRS comes calling, the banker calls. You get a letter in the mail, you get sued, um, and, and and those are all things that go directly to me. In almost all scenarios, those are things that I address. I jump on the phone. I solve that because of. What I've mentioned before of my own adversity, unfortunately, I have relationships with way too many attorneys and understand way too many things legally and can really help people out of that thing that keeps them, you know, awake and up at night that they really, really, really struggle with. Um, and then we've got our events. We do events, you know, live fly-in events, um, virtual events, uh, roundtables, but you've got to be a client at some level or have a relationship with us to be invited to those because we're very fortunate to have more people that want to come to those events than we have spots. And so it's really, really, really fun. So that is what we do. And it's a lot, but we love it. And we're totally committed to it. And I keep building out the team to be able to deliver that. And it's really, really, really fun to equip the team to be able to deliver all of those services to all the people that trust us. And that's the way we look at it is people trust yeah. us with their businesses. And that's really, really, really cool. Yeah. I'm one of them. Like it feels like I'm in, we're in an email or we're on a call once a month, just diving into problems that we're having. Cause we're not perfect. And the people that we work with aren't perfect and they do things and things just happen. So it's business, but you have to have the consultants around you like a Jason cup to say, Hey, we're having this issue. Come help us with it. And then, okay, next thing you know, now we're doing a whole training on just on this one topic. Right. Uh, so it's awesome to have people like you in our, uh, in our corner to get us through this thing. But I'm sure you've had, um, in your, other people who like, hey, it just came to you too late. Like there, there's nothing you could do. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are a handful of those um, scenarios that get to us and, and it's, it's pretty significant. It's hard to, hard to dig out of that. Um, but we oftentimes can do it. The, the problem is, and this is what I, I literally was telling somebody last week on the phone. This is that, most of the time, these systemic problems in businesses have taken years to develop and there's no quick fix to it. And so if it takes years to develop the problem, it's going to take at least months to solve it. And most business owners, I mean, we're not the we're not the the the, the quick weight loss pill, you know, which doesn't exist, right? You can't take a pill and you know lose a bunch of weight. You got to put in effort, put in energy. It takes time. You got to choose to have great diet and exercise and 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 make good decisions. And that's the same thing as a business, really. 
Um, but it's going to take time. You know, you built up those bad habits over time and you've got to almost re retrain the mindset to get rid of those bad habits and to focus on what needs to occur. And that that's a that's hard and that's a challenge. And sometimes it's hard to overcome and you just can't overcome it. Yeah, for sure. What do you, uh, like, as far as the industry, you know, service industry, where, where do you see the state of the industry now? And where do you see it in the next, you know, three to five years? So the, the uh, I, I think actually the answer to that is the same. I think that we're in this transition. I, we work with a lot of people. So, so we do, um, we do mergers and acquisitions too. We work with people on That's my next and thing. <laughs> Um, and, and one of the, one of the traits that we're seeing, and I mean, I've done more buys and sells of business in the last couple of years than I did in the 10 years before that. There's a lot of clients that are changing hands. And sometimes this is where I think the industry is going. Sometimes it's a business owner saying, Hey, I've got this multi-service business. I've got an irrigation department. I've got a fertilization weed control business. I've got a holiday lighting business. I've got a mowing business. I've got a landscaping business. I've got a landscape enhancement business. And I love that diversity that that creates, but I really just want to focus on landscape installation or irrigation and holiday lighting. And so they want to sell off parts of their clients and businesses. They don't want to be in mowing anymore. They don't want to be uh, in furt and pest anymore, although that's not the case. Most people are getting into furt and pest, as you very well know. And, and so there's, there's a selling of clients or a selling of books of business that's occurring and I think that the trend that I'm seeing, and I do think that this is going to continue to play out, is that as as the business owners who want to accelerate their business know-how, they realize that they have certain products and services that are easier for them to sell. They can sell at a premium price. They've got the equipment and the people to deliver that, and they make a good gross profit on it. And they want to focus on that. Oftentimes, when we get into the details and the weeds of looking at people's finances, and this doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time to get this data. And we look at divisional profitability amongst all the divisions that are in the business. There's usually one or two divisions that are making a lot of money and then one or two or three that are not making a lot of money. You blend it all together and you feel like you're making a lot of money, but why would you want to go and continue to do services that you're not making the right gross margin on? You know, And so I, I think that that is a trend that we're going to. I think that I think also there's a trend for business owners. They, they, they're beginning to recognize the impact of ridiculously tight um, uh, route density. And I was literally on a call last night with a long-term client of mine, and we were talking about, you know, how do we even shrink the area, the service area. It's the Jimmy John's mentality. You've probably heard me talk about that. Most people know what Jimmy John's is, a sandwich shop that they do a lot of their business via delivery. And if you're one house out of their delivery um, uh, footprint, they will not deliver to you. Sorry, we don't service that address. I believe that home service industries are, are starting to focus on that as well. Um, they And that also helps control cost in marketing and client acquisition. But more importantly, Man, route density and, and, and the downtime that your crews have or crew has or technician has driving from property to property is absolutely paramount. It's one of the places that, um, that literally clients are printing extra money by just redoing their scheduling, right? And so I'm seeing not only shrinking of the model, 
and focusing on maybe one or two core elements that they make a lot of gross profit on, but then also shrinking of the geographic area where most people are like, no, I want to grow my geographic area. I want to open up into this new city or this new town or this new neighborhood where more people are saying, nope, I want to shrink it down. And they're selling off those clients to someone else. Um, and, and so I think that that's something top line. I'm not suggesting everybody should go and do that that's listening to this. It, it requires a lot of opening the hood and looking underneath the hood and understanding what you can do and what that is called a pro forma. What does the business look like in the future pro forma if you were to shrink? And when you go and you do that, man, really cool things can happen to your business from a financial standpoint and your marketing and client acquisition and, and scheduling becomes very acute to a certain geographic area rather than, hey, you know, I'm going to service all of Kansas City. Kansas City, you know, you know, citywide has 2 million people in it. And it takes a long time to drive from the farthest end of one city to the other end of the city, you know. And but why would I want to do that if I'm if I'm doing point to point, you know, where I've, I've, I show up at a client's house, do a service, jump in the truck, go 20 minutes down the road. I, I say now, uh, Jonas, that the the most efficient new client is right next door. The next most efficient client is one street over. The next most efficient client is one town over. And the least efficient client is one city over. And so when you can go and you can get all the neighbors or an entire neighborhood or the, the majority of a neighborhood, your truck is moving minutes in between properties rather than 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And that's dead time. You're paying that team member to move that truck. You're creating no revenue from it whatsoever. And you are leaving money on the table. Those are the places that I think is it, 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 the industry is is going. And, and I think that, that that is is key and paramount. The third thing I would say is that the industry is trying earnestly to become more tech focused. It's kind of hard at times with a, with an industry that requires a human interaction. We don't sell tech. It's not like we can go create an algorithm in software and all of a sudden our work is done. Someone physically in most scenarios has to go out and physically do the work. But the industry is ready for that tech advancement. And it's not 100% there yet. Yeah, there's some bright spots, but I'm not even convinced that you know, the electric mowers are going to play out or the robotic mowers are going to play out. I, I don't know because it's not proven. It's not a proven concept. And and doesn't mean that I'm not embracing it because I'm all for finding the next best, greatest, awesomest thing, technology to be able to move a business forward. But I know there's a lot of people on the vendor side that's trying to figure out what that next tech is that's gonna that's gonna hit and make a change agent in the business. We don't know what it is yet. I don't I don't have a oh well, go do this because it's not proven yet. And there's to me there maybe would be too much capital risk to go and do that and to have it be successful. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, one of the watch outs that I want to bring up real quick is that typically when someone signs up a neighbor or the next neighbor, right? They always want to discount their service because they're next door. It just seems like that's just what I hear a lot of people say. I'm like, absolutely do not do that. It's like, well, he's right next door. I'm, it's just one stop. I'm like, I get that. But let's just say you fast forward two years and they're not your client. You get them all discounts, but your original customer is gone. You have the discounted customer there. Now I was left with a few discounted customers because you're cheap. Like, it, it absolutely will blow up your blow up your, your building of your route. So just just a watch out there. Make sure that you're charging everyone the exact same as far as square footage or lot square footage. So that's throw that. Well, out and there. the other thing is because okay, there's another layer to that. I agree with you completely. I don't like discounts. I don't like yeah, that word. You know, I mean, 
it just is ridiculous. It is what it is. But I will also tell you that you already have a built-in case study referral because that client, the, the new potential client, is looking at their neighbor's lawn. They're already seeing the, the work that's being done. In my old house, I was the first neighbor on the block that hired a lawn care company. I was also one of the first neighbors to put an irrigation system in. Combination of irrigation and lawn care company <laughs> made my lawn look awesome. Well, guess what? When I sold that house, almost everybody on my block had a lawn care company. They were my client and who did my work. And also they had irrigation systems and the lawns. If I would have taken a picture seven years ago when I bought the house compared to today, all the lawns look totally different. Why? Because... I'm a lawn care guy, you know, I'm a, I'm a horticulture guy, you know, I came in and I did a change agent in that and everybody followed my lead, right? Well, there was a lot of money to be made by the service providers that went and put those irrigation systems in and also did the lawn care so that everybody could have a nicer looking lawn. I, there were no discounts that were given, none. Yeah. And it's always the best companies that are in the market that are charging the most too. Yep. And it's just funny how the people try to try to scale their business off being the cheapest. That's just not how it works. I want to be at the top, if not the top of the market all the time. Totally agree. Um, could, because you could probably talked about it a little bit last week, but so that's why I wrote it down during our podcast was on acquisitions. Um, mm -hmm. you, you see a lot of that going on right now, but what I've been finding is that the most businesses for sale right now that I've seen um, in my own experience are between like one in 4 million, which seems interesting. Um, I would agree. I mean, I'm just kind of scanning the conversations I'm having right now. I would agree with that. I also, there's also some people who are much smaller than that that are saying, I don't want to deal with this anymore. But do you see like, are those like, are those like more of buying routes? Would you say, or, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so the, the, the ones that are two, three, $400,000 that are selling, I call that you're not selling a business, you're selling a book of business. Right. So what do you see? And what do you, like, I know it, this is going to be a crazy question because <laughs> you're not going to be able to answer it. Um, but companies like that, like you're buying a few routes, like what does someone pay for that? How do they structure a deal somewhat? Like, obviously you can't give me exact answers because you don't know, like the even like all this stuff. Like, so just, Thoughts around those routes. Book of business, uh, we look at in a completely different way than a business. So if it's a business, let's call it $750,000, million dollars in sales or higher, we want to look at EBITDA. Um, we want to we, we want to do, you know, a factor, you know, we want to look at the asset value. We want to look at the brand equity. We want to, we want to look at a lot of different things. That's a more complex valuation For sure. uh, to determine what that is. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a longer conversation. The book of business honestly is a function of client acquisition. You know, how much are you willing to pay to acquire a lot of clients at a relatively quick pace, knowing you're going to have some drop off. Cause anytime you acquire a business, you're, you're, you're going to have some attrition, right? And so it's really a client acquisition strategy. Just give you an example. Okay. So let's say that your client acquisition costs, I'm going to make the math easy is a hundred dollars a client, right? Um, hundred dollars a client. And you can go and you can add 200 clients at $125 a client. 
I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. You got to look at your other numbers, but to be able to accelerate and add a whole bunch of clients at one time, boom, you're, you're all of a sudden, but then you got to make sure that you can logistically handle it, that you have the equipment, you have the people, you have the infrastructure in your admin silo, you have operational you, know, you have facility that will support it. You, you have the ability and capacity to go and accomplish that. And what is that, what is that Delta in terms of creating those efficiencies? I don't know. Each deal is different, but a book of business is about client acquisition. Buying a business is, is a much more complex valuation to figure out what it's worth. I can tell you this. In acquisitions, I tell people it's like buying a home or buying a piece of real estate. It's a very, very, very similar transaction. You know, you see the house, you go, boy, that looks really cool. Is it worth X number of dollars? Boy, I think so. And then you put an offer in on it. And then you go and you do the inspections, you do the appraisal, you walk through the house in a deeper level, you bring a contractor in to see how much it's going to cost to paint the walls and redo the floors and all that kind of stuff. And then you really determine, boy, is it really as good of a deal? Oh no, the foundation is bad or the walls are rotting or the plumbing is bad in the bathroom or the kitchen cabinets are you know falling apart or whatever it is, right? And so... That's one thing. I always liken it to a real estate transaction. The other thing that I would tell you and your listeners would be that that I believe that most people who especially are selling a book of business think that their business is worth a lot more than what it really is. It's insane. I mean, man, I was looking at a deal recently. I was like, I wish I would have looked at this deal before the deal got done because it's not a great deal. And so and so, you really have to, to really understand it. And there's a lot of errors that can occur in acquiring or selling you know, a business. And so people need to be very mindful of that. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, you know, I did, I tell the story I did, you know, four and a half or five mergers and acquisitions over my career millions and millions of dollars of transactions. And I feel like that one and a half of them were actually good, or I got a good ROI out of them. The rest of them, it was in that phase of me. I wanted to tell people, oh, I did a merger. I did an acquisition. I bought this. I bought that. It was not a good deal. It was not a good deal at all. I can go back and I can rewind the tape and see that. I don't think that generally across the table, buying businesses, if that's your rule of thumb, is going to really accelerate the business. The best way that you can always accelerate your business is to organically grow your client base because they're on your pricing. They know your culture. They're a client from yours from day one. When you buy a business, it's harder to retain them. It's harder the culturalization of the clients and the employees and the business models and the pricing and the profitability and integration and all of those different things. It's really, really, really a challenge. So in general, I mean, I love buying and selling businesses. I think it's really fun. But I'm probably a little bit more of, of a not a naysayer about it, but I'm definitely one that that um, I'm more cautious about that in in respect to the buyer, because I've seen so many of them go sideways and so many of them be bad deals and so many of them fall off the side of the mountain or or the company becomes debt laden or cash becomes a problem because they're growing too fast and they're growing by acquisition. Sometimes it's a great strategy. Oftentimes it might not be. There's a lot of moving parts to it. Yeah. So if Jason Cup's getting back in the industry next month, 
Is Jason going to start from ground zero or is he going to go and buy something that's already established? And the second question to that is, are you going to buy a, a company that you have to go in and fix and pay a little less for? Or are you going to go pay a premium for a good company that's running well? Man, gr- great question. I'm asked it fairly off. Number one, I'm not going back into the contract side <laughs> of the business. I can tell you that right now. A lot would have to be really bizarre for me to do that. Um, I love what I do now and have a great passion for it. But uh, that question is asked to me often. I would build it organically. I would totally build it organically. I do not think that I would buy a business that was struggling, although I know I could Marcus Lemonis it and I could fix it. Um, maybe that's going to change in the future. I mean, I have no intention whatsoever of that being the case. Definitely don't plan on going back into the industry. Um, but if I were, I would build it organically. Hmm, that's interesting. Total opposite of what JP would do. He would just buy a company, get them started. So I love, I love hearing both sides. I love it. Well, you know, so in our two final, well, not our I two remember. final, our, I remember. our, our, yeah. three, our three final Academy sessions, because there were yep. two finals. It's exactly this topic. One. Yeah. We, I mean, yeah, it was like, you know, if we were to go do it again, what would we go and build? build? And I didn't know what he was going to say and he didn't know what I was going to say. I mean, we did sort of, but I knew it would be the opposite, you know, and for me, but, but also my model, if you remember what I said, I, I mean, I, I, I would, I mean, I would, I, I could figure out how to make a couple of hundred grand a year in passive income and not have anything to do with it. I'm not going to go into that right now. Um, but for those that are in the old academy, they go listen to that session and they can hear exactly my rationale of why I would go and do it because I, I, I differently than Jonathan and doesn't matter. It's actually probably what made us really collaborative educators over the years is we didn't always see eye to eye and, and uh, we see very much eye to eye on debt and money and, and the way that you spend money on personal things. And we see eye to eye on that hundred percent, but maybe on building the business, we don't see eye to eye. And that's okay. It's totally awesome. I love the fact that we have that that difference. But for me, I'd rather have a handful of irons in the fire and have people out there running them than to have one big iron in the fire. And maybe that maybe that'll change over time. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. But it's interesting when you sit and you think about that. For sure. Um, as far as like the bigger acquisitions, where do you see multiples off EBITDA uh, in twenty twenty three? Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. It all has to do with business model, geographic area, how big the business is, how profitable the business is. There's a lot of factors in it, but the thing that I'm seeing, okay, that are the two not in the financial statements that will increase the multiplier is the strength of the team, how long the team has been there, who they are, what they do, what their history is, so on and so forth. So the team is definitely an addition to the multiplier and then also the brand recognition, um, I'm seeing some deals and I'm, I'm working some big deals right now um, that I'm seeing those multipliers be more generous because of team and, and, and brand recognition in the marketplace. Nice. Um, do you see PE going away anytime soon or do you think it's, uh, more people are going to get into it? In the industries, so I think that I do not think that PE is going away, but I think that PE, private equity, um, or venture capitalists or investors' money into the industry, I do not think it's going away. But I think that they are going to be very acute in the way that they go and find deals, and all, a lot of that, in my opinion, and I know I know enough about it because I, I know people who've done deals with private equity. I, I know clients who've done deals with private equity and I know what those deals are, but I also know people that are in family office and private equity. And so I, I know what they're looking for. Um, the th- Think about it this way. I'll just give one quick scenario. So it's October. 
October 2023 when you know we're recording this, um, you can easily park a million dollars into a eight to ten month CD and get five to five point two percent ROI. So investors are going to put money into a private equity fund or a family office. They want at least that because they can have 100% security go into a CD and they can make 5.2%. I'm in, I'm in a BlackRock or Black whatever it is uh, fund that was 5.27% last month. You know, I mean, that, that's what it was. And so why would I want to go risk money by putting it into a, something that could have a higher without that return on investment. So investors into those funds or into those elements, they are requesting more. Well, the problem is, is that interest rates are also higher. And so it's harder for the PE people to figure out how to go and have all of the masters be serviced. If they're taking debt, or if they have investors, both debt and investors want more money out of the deal, which means there has to be more EBITDA to be able to service that debt. So they're being very careful about what they go and acquire right now. That's my that's my that that's my top level opinion about venture capitals, private equity, um, or investors or family offices coming into the industry. It's still going to happen. But here's the other thing I would tell you: their intent is oftentimes different, in my opinion, than what you think it is. They oftentimes are packaging things up to possibly go and sell again. I I don't know, um, but that's my guess. That's my guess that what's happening. And so it has to be the right deal in the right marketplace with the right business, with the right reputation, with the right set of financials. And then you're going to get a multiplier that plays. But there's a couple of other external factors, investor expectations, and then the interest rates if they're going lending or, or there, because a lot of times what happens is, is that venture capitalists go in and they're the cash that's put up is the is the investor money, and then they put the cash up and they go get debt for the rest of the the acquisition. Sometimes that's the way that it occurs. So then you're serving both those masters, the lender and also the investors. So if you're going to go grow your company, and let's just say you want to take out a little bit of debt, would you go the bank, like a traditional bank route, or would you get an investor? I think it depends on the deal. Hard to tell because you know some some investors like a family office or family members or friends will will do it based on relationship, and so those terms might be more favorable. But then it adds an emotional term to it that you're borrowing money from people that you know and you love, and and that's a challenge. Banks, man, I mean, banks are in a tough place right now. I was looking at some data uh, for a state of the union that I'm going to record. Um, you know, by this weekend for our clients. And I was looking at some data on community banks and 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 the challenges that community banks and regional banks have right now with their debt portfolio. And um, and they they need deposits. People are pulling deposits out to put into those CDs. People are pulling deposits out to put into uh, money markets and all these things that are getting more yield, but banks need deposits to be able to lend. And so that means that when they do lend, it has to be the right deal. And they're probably going to charge a premium for it. So it's a little bit of a challenge right now. And again, I want to timestamp it as October 2023. The world could change in a month, and it was certainly different six months ago. But for those that are listening, that would be the current data as to where, as to where I'm at. I'm I'm a little bit anti-debt right now, unless you have a ridiculously strong balance sheet, um, because then you can margin the loans, as I said earlier. And, and I think that it's important to be to, to be, I, I'm allergic to debt in general, just as, as a, as personally, um, I have n- zero debt in my business, zero, not $1 of debt. Um, and personally, I have very little debt. Um, I don't want to be, I do not want to be, um, um, 
linked to that. But also, this industry is a very capital-intensive industry, and I'm not anti-debt for assets that make you money. I'm anti-debt for assets that don't make you money, like line of credit, credit card balances, uh, working capital, things like that. I am not interested in that at all. If you need to go buy a truck that you know will monetize and you margin in the additional interest that you might have to pay on that loan, then I'm okay with it. But you better have that data. It's not just, oh, let's just walk into the Ford dealership and buy a buy a truck because Ford might pop you at 11 or 12%. I've seen those numbers come out in creditworthy businesses. And you've got to figure out why a year ago it was 3%. Now it's 11 or 12% in your pricing to make sure that you can you can get your head above water in terms of just the cash flow that it takes to be able to have that asset on the road. If you had two books to that the listener should read that you've liked in the past, doesn't matter if they're business or just personal, uh, what, would, what would be two book recommendations? So one book that has that has transformed me and a lot of the element of building a team is good to great. It's an oldie but a goodie. I think that it's amazing to understand right people, right bus, right direction that the bus is going. That's all. Get your business model right. Get the right people on the bus. Have the you know right Colby results for those people. They can go and do really great things. Good to great was a big powerful one for me. Um, I also love raving fans. I believe that the customer experience is uh, is 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 still a challenge. Um, it amazes me how many companies are very short sighted in the company experience. So I think raving fans is a great book. I'm going to give you a third one because I think that it's a little bit relevant. I think that everybody wants to try to do more with their time. And the book I've talked about it for years. It's an it's an old book. But it is Getting Things Done by David Allen. Um, It is a great personal productivity book. I use it every single day in 2023 and have for the last 50 or 20 years. So much so that I went to the Getting Things Done conference in Amsterdam a handful of years ago. Absolutely life-changing in terms of just getting things done. Everybody in the world has 24 hours in a day. How you use those 24 hours is incredibly, incredibly powerful. My mode is eight hours of sleep. Eight hours of family, hobby, friends, fun, and then eight hours of work. I really try to do that. And I also try to not do hardly any work on the weekends unless it's it's an emergency situation. Um, I've tried hard in the life work balance to to have good life work balance and to and to have and to have um, guardrails to protect against that. Sometimes I mess that up, but I think it's eight, eight, eight and try to take your weekends off. I know there's people that will disagree with me, um, but I worked way too much earlier in my career and I didn't have a lot to show for it. And now I found better ways to work with less time. I still work a lot, but I found better ways to work with less time. I love that. Um, and then the last question of the day is, what are you most proud of? Wow. Two things. Most proud of the fact that um, I mentioned earlier in my story that I borrowed a lot of money from my parents, and I'm I'm proud of the fact that they were paid back and um, and and probably three times the amount that I borrowed from them. I'm proud of that. They risked on me, and and they're completely uh, 100% paid back, and and um, and and I'm and I'm grateful that that um, that risk that they took on me. You know, my mom and dad told me throughout all that that they believed in me and that was really important. So I'm proud of the fact that my relationship, you know, even up to when my mom passed away and my dad now today in my life on a daily basis, that I have that great relationship. Um, and that's very important to me. It would be very hard for me if I if I um, didn't 
honor the commitment that I made to my parents that I would pay them back and then some. Um, I'd say the second thing that I'm most proud of today is, um, is that I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what my harebrained idea is about businesses and finances and building teams and getting out of debt and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know what that impact has had on people, but I hear little sound bites of it. And I'm proud of the fact that, that, um, that I've been given the opportunity to have people trust me and us, our organization. Um, and trust is such a, uh, such a, such a powerful and, and difficult thing. And the minute that trust is compromised, it's gone for a long time, if not forever. And so at the end of every event or the end of every webinar, I always say to our, our team, I say, Hey, thank you. Thank you for trusting us. Um, and so I think that I, I'm proud of the fact that, that we, we have a handful of people out there that have trusted us over the years and have trusted me, um, shared with me things that maybe they've never shared with another human being. And, um, and I'm, I'm proud of the fact that people trust us and I'm proud of the fact that that trust is allowed, you know, hopefully at the end of the day for something to be a little bit different in family or life or business or finances. And so that trust, that trust is important. And I, I want to do everything I can to not ever compromise that trust. Love that. Again, thank you for being here. I know I took up a little more time than what you said. Got four minutes over. But uh, again, thank you for being here. Thanks for your friendship. Thanks for your mentorship over the years. Like I wouldn't be where I'm at today without you. So I appreciate you more than you probably ever know. Ditto. I appreciate you. And as I said in the beginning, I love what you're doing. I love the impact you're having on people's lives. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, don't care that we went four minutes over. Um, worth every single second of the investment and I'm proud of you, very proud of you. Um, and, and I'm not alone. There's a lot of other people in your life personally and professionally that are very proud of you. And, um, and I just say, keep crushing it, keep making it be about other people. And those that make it be about other people, um, will always, always, always move the ball forward. I missed that for a big part of life. And I'm, I'm, I'm not really embarrassed or ashamed of it, because I'm grateful that I got that, that nugget and, and hopefully I'm, I'm, I'm doing that right. And so always make it about other people and you're going to keep having impact with people. So proud of you. Keep it up. Thank you. Will do.